So do you have questions? Questions about sexuality, identity, the modern translation of morality? Do you ever wonder about what God thinks about these things? Well, you're definitely not the only one. And I, for one, am tired of hearing the wrong people talk about this and the right people remain absolutely silent about it. It's time for the brazen truth. I'm Tiffany Cater, and this is the podcast where we will bring it all out into the light. This is the podcast where we will talk about morality, sexuality, and spirituality according to the Bible. This is the podcast where we will talk about all the things you are not supposed to talk about in the church. And do you know why? Ephesians 5.13 says, Everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. Keeping everything in the dark is a recipe for personal disaster. I can attest to that. Today, we are going to be talking about how I became so passionate about this topic, my experiences, and some of the lessons that I learned along the way. Now, I hesitated to open with this because this isn't a podcast about me. It's a podcast about us and for us, all of us who have experienced the loss of self, a loss of identity, a loss of intimacy with God because of things hidden in the darkness. I'm starting by being super vulnerable and giving you all way, way too much information about my past because I so wish that someone would have done the same for me years ago. Now, I'm going to give you a rated PG-13 version of my story, but parental discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me. Here we go. So to understand a thing, oftentimes you have to go back to its beginning. So let's go all the way back to Genesis 3, the entrance of shame. Yep, we're talking about that fateful day when Eve decided to eat that fruit. So three things that the enemy tested to successfully execute his attack on man's identity because that was his first target. The first thing was he tested her knowledge about what God said. He said, did God really say, don't eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, or you will surely die? And Eve said, yeah, that is what God said. And he also said, don't even touch it. So Satan knew right away that Eve didn't know what God really said. The second thing he tested was her knowledge about who she was. He said, no, you won't surely die. You'll just become like God. She didn't realize that she was created in God's likeness. She was already like God. The third thing he tested was her knowledge about who God was. He said, God just doesn't want you to have that fruit because then he knows that you'll have the knowledge of good and evil and you'll know right from wrong. She didn't understand that God's love for her was so pure, was so real, was so genuine that he would never withhold any good thing from her. So because she didn't know what God said about whose image she was made in, and she didn't know that God loved her and would never keep something good from her, she imposed her own version of morality on the perfection of the Garden of Eden, and shame was the immediate result. She looked at the fruit, and she judged it to be good for eating and pleasing to the eye. She imposed her own morality. God never intended for his children to experience shame. 
Some people get that twisted and think that shame is somehow spiritual or righteous. It's not. It's not. This is why God told them not to eat of the fruit of knowledge of good and evil. Do you guys know what the definition of shame is? Shame is a powerful feeling of humiliation or distress caused by the consciousness of wrong or foolish behavior. So that sounds a lot like the knowledge of good and evil, right? Except just more of the negative side of that. So if Eve didn't previously have the knowledge of good and evil, and she couldn't differentiate between right and wrong, then how would she have even known that disobeying God was wrong in the first place? That Someone asked me that question once, thinking that they were going to trip me up. But I did a little digging, and I found out that obedience initially didn't have to do with morality. Okay, because in a perfect world where everyone loves perfectly, there is no your truth or my truth to corrupt unadulterated perfect love. In that perfect world, obedience does not have to do with shame or obligation or right or wrong. It has to do with love. John 14, 14 through 15 says, You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. If you love me, keep my commands. That's Jesus talking, guys. That is Jesus' words. He is saying, I will do what you ask me to do, and you do what I ask you to do. Why? Because of love. Obedience didn't originally have to do with subordination or hierarchies. It was a matter of love. Why would anyone blindly obey in the name of love? When would that ever be a safe thing to do? Well, what is love? What is love? 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7 says, Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. Guys, if love looks like that, then where could it go wrong? If love looks like that, then there is no need to be afraid. But in this world, sin exists. In this world, shame exists. In this world, a distorted, twisted version of love lingers in the aftermath of the fall of mankind. In a perfect world where everyone loves perfectly, love would be our moral compass, and God is love. So in this imperfect world, so much more so do we need to trust God? Do we need to trust Him to be our moral compass and do away with any imposing of our own morality onto God? We don't see what He sees. And if we tried to understand the reasoning behind some of the things that He tells us to do or not to do, our brains would probably melt We don't have the capacity, not in these bodies. So let me read that definition of shame once more. Shame is a painful feeling of humiliation or distress caused by the consciousness of wrong or foolish behavior. The definition of morality is the principles concerning the distinction between right and wrong or good and bad behavior. So in the beginning, God was our morality and God is love. That's what we trusted in. But when we imposed our own morality, 
That's when the definition of shame came into play, a painful feeling of humiliation or distress caused by the consciousness of wrong or foolish behavior. So what is shame the result of? Shame is the result of a loss of identity, mistrust, and superseding God's perfect morality that is founded in perfect love with our own imperfect morality founded in insecurity. 1 John 4, 16-17 says, And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God, and God is in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. Jesus says in John 8, 31, If you hold to my teachings, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Guys, there is no your truth, okay? There's no my truth. There is only the truth, and that truth will set you free. That is the only truth that will set you free. Okay, so now that I laid the foundation of what shame does and the strategy that the enemy uses to tear down our identity, I want to share with you guys my testimony and how the enemy used shame against me for a very long time from a very early age. So I was born into a very loving family who taught me about Jesus and lavished me with affection, but I was also born into a Pentecostal church that was super legalistic. So I was being taught two different things, love and acceptance from my parents, but from the church I went to, I was taught that women were less than. Now, this was indirectly, okay? They didn't come out and say that, but, you know, women couldn't wear pants, they couldn't wear makeup, they couldn't cut their hair, and they certainly couldn't preach. So all of these rules and regulations and restrictions geared towards women kind of made me feel like women were less than. Like, maybe God loved men more than he loved women. Maybe women were created for man's pleasure, and man was created for God's pleasure. So I was I was sold a lie, and I believed the lie. Um, now, all of these lies that I believed were subconscious, I couldn't really put my finger on it until later down in life when I had the opportunity and the Holy Spirit to help me analyze my thought pro- my thought processes and um, what I was actually experiencing at that age. So that was the beginning, the very beginning. Now, as early as when I was six years old, when I was six years old, uh, there was an event that happened in my life. It was some sort of a sexual experience. I believe it was sexual abuse, but I only have bits and pieces, so I don't remember enough of it to know. But I do know what it did to me, and I do know how it affected me. From that moment on, I was constantly thinking about sex. I had dreams about sex. I wanted to, well, I mean, they weren't dreams about sex. They were just sexual dreams. Um, I wanted to experience sexual things in whatever capacity I could at that age. Um, And I began to have these immense feelings of shame and self-loathing and um, just a feeling of disgust with myself. And I, I would have nightmares. I would have nightmares where, you know, me, for instance, one of my nightmares was me and my brother and my sister in a car and we were looking up at the stars and the stars turned into angels. And then my sister would ask one of the angels, when I die, am I going to go to heaven? And the angel would say, 
yes. And then my brother would ask, when I die, am I going to go to heaven? And the angel would say yes. And then I would say, what about me? And the angel would be like, nope, (laughs) not you. And, you know, it's such a sad dream because it shows the state of my mind and how scared that I was of being rejected by God. So because I believed that I was such a depraved person, I began to act on that belief. You know, the Bible says that uh, what a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And I thought I was a wolf in sheep's clothing or that I was some sort of a bad guy, right? So when we would have sleepovers, I would pursue these um, these experiences with my friends. I would try to put feelers out there to see if anyone was thinking about these things, if anyone was feeling these things. And, um, you know, most of the time my friends had no idea what I was getting at. It was very subtle. There were a few times where I know that I could have hurt somebody like I was hurt. Like, I I know that it's not the same thing as as, um, you know, child abuse or pedophilia, but at the same time, it can cause the same amount of shame if it's another kid. It can cause the same um, feelings of being sexually awakened or aware of things as sexual abuse can cause, you know? Um, so I, I kind of knew that deep down in my heart. I kind of knew that that's what I was doing. And then um, soon after that, I found out that my uncle got arrested and put in prison for molesting his kids. And in my mind, I thought, well, maybe this kind of depravity, this kind of um, perversion is hereditary. Maybe I'm like my uncle. Obviously, I wasn't like my uncle, but in my mind, I correlated who I was with that same kind of action, that same kind of crime. That just goes to show the state of my self-esteem and the state of my self-image. When I was around 11 or 12, I discovered masturbation. Now, I didn't know it by that name. I didn't know what it was. I just knew that I was bad and that I was the only one doing that. And, um, you know, I just want to put this out there, guys. Um, Normality should never be used as a measurement for morality, okay? Normality should never be used as a measurement for morality, but it does help to know that you're not the only one who struggles with things like that. It does help to know that there's hope for you, okay? So when you just feel like you're completely alone and there's no one out there who deals with the things that you deal with, you start to believe the lies that you are this other person and you start to act on those lies. So, um, you know, later on, guys, in one of the other episodes, we are going to be talking about masturbation. It's important that we talk about it. It's important that we talk about what the Bible says about it and what the Bible doesn't say about it. That's probably going to be a little bit of an awkward um, episode, but it's worth going into, okay? Um, But around that same time, I began to self-harm. I began to cut my legs. And it's interesting because the root word of masturbation is self-harm and I started cutting myself around that same time. Um, now, when I would cut myself, I I don't I didn't realize it at the time, but um, God showed me later on down the road why it made me feel better, why it made me feel better. Um, it made me feel better because when I would see the blood, I would feel sorry for myself for once. I would feel like I was the victim for once instead of the perpetrator. I would feel self-pity instead of self loathing. I began to feel like when I was a victim or when I felt like a victim, 
I was somehow a better person. Victimhood became the only time that I would feel better about myself. And guys, thinking like that is so bad for you. It's so bad for you because then in order to feel right, you have to feel wrong. In order to feel good about yourself, you have to have something tragic happening to you. That's not a healthy way to think. It's not a healthy way to live. When I got into my senior year of high school, I met this girl who, she was kind of masculine. She was kind of a tomboy. She was feminine, but she was kind of a tomboy. And I admired that about her. I, I saw it as a strength and I wanted to be like her. We became friends and then we became best friends and then we became more. I fell in love with her. And I'm not talking about a love like you had, uh, you know, crazy summer during college or something like that. I was in love with her. I felt like I couldn't live without her. Uh, My parents found out and they told me that I had a choice. I could either move out of the house or I could stop seeing her. So I decided to move out of the house. I didn't really have a place to go, um, so I couch surfed mostly. Um, I stayed wherever the party was at, and sometimes there was no party. So I slept outside. I slept in ditch banks. I slept in a community restroom once. Yeah, I was I was homeless, guys. And um, it was a miracle that I made it out of that season alive, and I'm thankful that I did. Um, but uh, we planned to get married, me and this girl. Um, we had a whole plan mapped out. I had dropped out of high school. Um, we contacted a friend that lived in California, which was the closest state that had legalized same-sex unions. She was going to come pick me and my friend up. We were going to live at her house until my girlfriend turned 18, and then we were going to get married. So the day that she came into town to get us, she took my girlfriend to her house to pick up a few um, items that she had left at her house. And when she got there, the police were waiting for her. Now, she had been in trouble with the law previously, um, mainly for sneaking out of the house to hang out with me. Um, So they found a reason to arrest her and send her to juvie. We lived in a small town, so everyone knew everyone else. The police knew our parents. Our parents knew the police. Our parents knew each other. Her parents went to my parents' church. So um, anyways, they arrested her and put her in juvie. And a couple of days later, they contacted me, and they asked me to come into the station for questioning. So I went into the station, and um, they sat me down. It was about four police officers in a room. And they sat me down, and they said, look, We know about your relationship. We know how far it's gone. And if you don't stop seeing her, we're going to arrest you for statutory rape and put you into prison for up to five years. And then when you finally do get out, you're going to have to register as a sex offender for the rest of your life. Okay, so... The word sex offender just reverberated in my mind. It was affirmation. It was confirmation of all of my deepest and darkest fears about myself. So I left that police station determined to prove something to myself. I left that police station determined to prove that I was sexually normal. So I went out and I found the guy that all the girls were having sex with, and I started having sex with him. By the next month, I was pregnant. Three months after that, I was married. Right off the bat, um, he was cheating on me. He was abusive. Uh, he had a he had a domestic violence record prior to me, and of course, I believe the whole his ex was crazy story. Um, but it turned out, unfortunately, that she was very much telling the truth, and I experienced that firsthand. 
Um, but you know, something else that happened during our marriage was I got an STD. And um, thankfully, it was something the doctor could just give me a pill for to get rid of. But in my mind, it confirmed once again everything that I have had ever thought about myself, just the stigma of being labeled with an STD. But as I was going through all of these things, the abuse, um, him cheating on me, the mental abuse, all these things, as I was going through those things, I always thought that I deserved it. So leaving wasn't really um, an option for me. I always thought, this is what happens when you do bad things, when you're a bad person, you get bad things dealt to you. And um, also on top of that, there was that whole victimhood, you know, kind of felt nice to not be the bad guy for once in my story. Um, But once I had my baby, okay, once I had my little, beautiful, perfect, precious baby boy, I realized a few things. A, that I had done this, that this baby who was perfect and beautiful and just utter goodness okay, was something that I did, something that I made, something that God had given me, something good. So that was kind of the first of many changes in my um, view of myself, in my identity. And the second thing I thought was, maybe, maybe I deserve these bad things that have happened to me. But this baby, this little precious perfect boy, He deserves the absolute best, and I was determined to try my best to give him the best. And being in that relationship, seeing those things, that abuse being a part of his life was not the best for him. So that gave me the strength. He gave me the strength to walk out of that relationship. With that, guys, that is the end of part one of my testimony. I'll talk about other things. Guys, I had so many good things happen to me. I am married to an amazing, handsome, strong, incredible man of God who is a great father, and I cannot wait to tell you what happened between husband one and husband two (laughs) because it's a great story, and there's a lot of different things in there that God showed me about being a single mom, being a Christian person who is single, who's not a teenager, um, dating all of those fun things. But um, for the first six episodes, we're going to be talking about masturbation. We're going to be talking about homosexuality. We're going to be talking about um, sexual abuse. We're going to be talking about all of those things. Um, Next episode is going to be April 15th. And we're going to be talking about um, homosexuality. So please, guys, I want to know your questions. So come at me. I know you guys have them. I want you guys to hit me with them. So you can comment below or you can find me on Facebook, The Brazen Truth. Send me a message there. And of course, comment, subscribe, like, and share. That's it for today, guys. Until next time.